chapter 14. Motherhood became my motivator. It dictated my movements, my decisions, the rhythm of every day. It took no time, no thought at all, for me to be fully consumed by my new role as a mother. I'm a detail-oriented person, and a baby is nothing if not a reservoir of details. Barak and I studied little Malia, taking in the mystery of her rosebud lips, her dark fuzzy head and unfocused gaze, the herky-jerky way she moved her tiny limbs. We bathed and swaddled her and kept her pressed to our chests. We tracked her eating, her hours of sleep, her every gurgle. We analyzed the contents of each soiled diaper, as if it might tell us all her secrets. She was a tiny person, a person entrusted to us. I was heady with the responsibility of it, fully in her thrall. I could lose an hour just watching her breathe. When there's a baby in the house, time stretches and contracts, abiding by none of the regular rules. A single day can feel endless, and then suddenly six months have blown right past. Barak and I laughed about what parenthood had done to us. If we'd once spent the dinner hour parsing the intricacies of the juvenile justice system, comparing what I'd learned during my stint at Public Allies with some of the ideas he was trying to fit into a reform bill in the legislature, we now, with no less fervor, debated whether Malia was too dependent on her pacifier, and compared our respective methods for getting her to sleep. We were, as most new parents are, obsessive and a little boring, and nothing made us happier. We hauled little Malia and her baby carrier with us to Zinfandel for our Friday night dates, figuring out how to streamline our order so we could be in and out quickly before she got too restless. Several months after Malia was born, I'd returned to work at the University of Chicago. I negotiated to come back only half-time, figuring this would be a win-win sort of arrangement that I could now be both career woman and perfect mother. Striking the Mary Tyler Moore Marion Robinson balance I'd always hoped for. We'd found a babysitter, Glorina Cassable, a doting expert caregiver about 10 years older than I was. Born in the Philippines, she was trained as a nurse and had raised two kids of her own. Glorina Glow was a short, bustling woman with a short, practical haircut and gold wire rim glasses who could change a diaper in 12 seconds flat. She had a nurse's hyper-competent do-anything energy and would become a vital and cherished member of our family for the next few years. Her most important quality was that she loved my baby passionately. What I didn't realize, and this would also go into my file of things many of us learn too late, is that a part-time job, especially when it's meant to be a scaled-down version of your previously full-time job, can be something of a trap. Or at least that's how it played out for me. At work, I was still attending all the meetings I always had, while also grappling with most of the same responsibilities. The only real difference was that I now made half my original salary and was trying to cram everything into a 20-hour week. If a meeting ran late, I'd end up tearing home at breakneck speed to fetch Melia so that we could arrive on time, Melia eager and happy, me sweaty and hyperventilating, to the afternoon wiggleworms class at a music studio on the north side. To me, it felt like a sanity-warping double bind. I battled guilt when I had to take work calls at home. I battled a different sort of guilt when I sat at my office distracted by the idea that Melia might be allergic to peanuts. Part-time work was meant to give me more freedom, but mostly it left me feeling as if I were only half doing everything, that all the lines in my life had been blurred. Meanwhile, it seemed that Barak had hardly missed a stride. A few months after Melia's birth, he'd been re-elected to a four-year term in the state senate, winning with 89% of the vote. He was popular and successful, and played spinner that he was, he was also starting to think about bigger things namely, running for the U.S. Congress, hoping to unseat a four-term Democrat named Bobby Rush. Did I think it was a good idea for him to run for Congress? 
No, I did not. It struck me as unlikely that he'd win, given that Rush was well-known, and Barak was still a virtual nobody. But he was a politician now and had traction inside the state Democratic Party. He had advisors and supporters, some of whom were urging him to give it a shot. Somebody had conducted a preliminary poll that seemed to suggest maybe he could win. And this I know for sure about my husband. You don't dangle an opportunity in front of him, something that could give him a wider field of impact, and expect him just to walk away. Because he doesn't. He won't. At the end of 1999, when Melia was almost 18 months old, we took her to Hawaii at Christmas time to visit her great-grandmother Toot, who was now 77 years old, and living in the same small high-rise apartment she'd been in for decades. It was meant to be a family visit the one time each year Toot could see her grandson and great-granddaughter. Winter had once again clapped itself over Chicago, siphoning the warmth from the air and the blue from the sky. Feeling antsy both at home and at work, we booked a modest hotel room near Waikiki Beach, and started counting down the days. Barak's teaching duties at the law school had wrapped up for the semester, and I'd put in for time off at my job. But then politics got in the way. The Illinois Senate was hung up in a marathon debate, trying to settle on the provisions of a major crime bill. Instead of breaking for the holidays, it went into a special session with the aim of pushing through to a vote before Christmas. Barak called me from Springfield, saying we'd need to delay our trip by a few days. This wasn't great news, but I understood it was out of his hands. All I cared was that we eventually got there. I didn't want to spending Christmas alone, and beyond that Barak and I needed the downtime. The trip to Hawaii, I was figuring, would separate both of us from our work, and give us a chance to simply breathe. He was now officially running for Congress, which meant that he rarely switched off. He would later give an interview to a local paper, estimating that during the six or so months he campaigned for Congress, he spent less than four full days at home with me and Melia. This was the painful reality of campaigning. On top of his other responsibilities, Barak lived with a ticking clock, one that incessantly reminded him of the minutes and hours remaining before the March primary. How he spent each of those minutes and hours could, at least in theory, affect the eventual outcome. What I was learning, too, was that in the eyes of a campaign operation, any minutes or hours a candidate spends privately with family are viewed basically as a waste of that valuable time. I was enough of a veteran now to try to keep myself largely disengaged from the daily ups and downs of the race. I given Barak's decision to run a wand blessing, adopting a let's just get this out of the way attitude about the whole thing. I thought maybe he'd try and fail to get into national politics, and that this would then motivate him to want to try something entirely different. In an ideal world, my ideal world, anyway, Barak would do something like become the head of a foundation, where he could have an impact on issues that mattered, and also make it home for dinner at night. We flew to Hawaii on December 23rd, after the legislature finally hit pause for the holiday, though it still hadn't managed to find a resolution. But to my relief, we made it. Waikiki Beach was a revelation for young Melia. She tootled up and down the shoreline, kicking at the waves and exhausting herself with joy. We spent a merry, uneventful Christmas with Toot in her apartment, opening gifts and marveling at her devotion to the 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle she had going on a card table. As it always had, Oahu's languid green waters and cheery populace helped unhitch us from our everyday concerns, leaving us blissful and caught up in little more than the feeling of warm air on our skin, and our daughters delighted absolutely everything. As the headlines kept reminding us, we were fast approaching the dawn of a new millennium. And we were in a lovely place to spend the final days of 1999.
All was going fine until Barak got a call from someone back in Illinois, letting him know that the Senate was somewhat abruptly going back into session to finish work on the crime bill. If he intended to vote, he had something like 48 hours to get back to Springfield. Another clock was now ticking. With a sinking heart, I watched as Barak jumped into action, rebooking our flights to leave the following day, pulling the plug on our vacation. We had to go. We had no choice. I suppose I could have stayed on alone with Malia, but what would be the fun in that? I wasn't happy with the idea of leaving, but I understood, again, this was the way of politics. The vote was an important one the bill included new gun control measures, which Barak had fervently supported and it had also proven divisive enough that a single absent senator could potentially prevent the bill from passing. We were going home. But then something unexpected happened. Overnight, Malia spiked a high fever. She'd ended the day as an exuberant surf kicker, but was now, not even 12 hours later, a hot and listless heap of toddler-shaped misery, glassy-eyed and wailing in pain, but still too young to tell us anything specific about it. We gave her Tylenol, but it didn't help much. She was tugging at one ear, which made me suspect it was infected. The reality of what this meant started to set in. We sat on the bed, watching Melia drift into a restless, uncomfortable sleep. We were only a matter of hours now from our flight home. I saw the worry deepening on Barak's face, caught as he was in the crosscurrents of his opposing obligations. What we were about to decide went far beyond the moment at hand. She can't fly, I said, obviously. I know. We have to switch the flights again. I know. Unspoken was the fact that he could just go. He could walk out the door and catch a cab to the airport, and still make it to Springfield in time to vote. He could leave his sick daughter and fretting wife halfway across the Pacific, and go join his colleagues. It was an option. But I wasn't going to martyr myself by suggesting it. I was vulnerable, I'll admit, swimming in the uncertainty of what was going on with Melia. What if the fever got worse? What if she needed a hospital? Meanwhile, around the world, there were more paranoid people than us readying fallout shelters, hoarding cash and jugs of water, just in case the worst of the Y2K predictions came true, and the power and communication grids went on the fritz due to buggy computer networks, unable to register the new millennium. It wasn't going to happen, but still, was he really thinking about leaving? It turns out he wasn't. He didn't. He would never. I didn't listen to the call he made to his legislative aide that day, explaining that he'd missed the crime bill vote. I didn't care. I was just focused on our girl. And as soon as Barak got off that call, he was too. She was our little human. We owed everything to her first. In the end, the year 2000 arrived without incident. After a couple of days of rest and some antibiotics, what indeed it turned out to be a nasty ear infection for Melia cleared up, returning our toddler to her normal bouncy state. Life would go on. It always did. On another perfect blue sky day in Honolulu, we boarded a plane and flew home to Chicago, back into the chill of winter, and into what for Barak was shaping up to be a political disaster. The crime bill had failed to pass the state legislature, losing by five votes. For me, there was no math to do. Even if Barak had made it back from Hawaii in time, his vote almost certainly wouldn't have changed the outcome. Still, he took a beating for his absence. His opponents in the congressional primary pounced on the opportunity to depict Barak as some kind of bone-vibant lawmaker who'd been on vacation in Hawaii, no less and hadn't deigned to come back to vote on something as significant as gun control. Bobby Rush, the incumbent congressman, had tragically lost a family member to gun violence in Chicago only a few months earlier, 
which cast Barak in an even poorer light. Nobody seemed to register that he was from Hawaii, that he'd been visiting his widowed grandmother, or that his daughter had fallen ill. All that mattered was the vote. The press hammered on it for weeks. The Chicago Tribune's editorial page criticized the group of senators who hadn't managed to vote that day, calling them a bunch of gutless sheep. Barak's other opponent, a fellow state senator named Don Trotter, took his own shots, telling a reporter that to use your child as an excuse for not going to work also shows poorly on the individual's character. I wasn't accustomed to any of this. I wasn't used to having opponents or seeing my family life scrutinized in the news. Never before had I heard my husband's character questioned like that. It hurt to think that a good decision, the right decision, as far as I was concerned, seemed to be costing him so much. In a column he wrote for our neighborhood's weekly newspaper, Barak calmly defended his choice to stay with me and Malia in Hawaii. We hear a lot of talk from politicians about the importance of family values, he wrote. Hopefully, you will understand when your state senator tries to live up to those values as best he can. It seemed that with the fickleness of a child's earache, Barak's three years of work in the state senate had been all but wiped away. He'd led an overhaul of state campaign finance laws that ushered in stricter ethics rules for elected officials. He'd fought for tax cuts and credits for the working poor, and was focused on cutting prescription drug costs for senior citizens. He'd earned the trust of legislators from all parts of the state, Republican and Democrat alike. But none of the real stuff seemed to matter now. The race had devolved into a series of low blows. From the start of the campaign, Barak's opponents and their supporters had been propagating unseemly ideas meant to gin up fear and mistrust among African-American voters, suggesting that Barak was part of an agenda cooked up by the white residents of Hyde Park Red, white Jews to foist their preferred candidate on the South Side. Barak is viewed in part to be the white man in blackface in our community, Don Trotter told the Chicago Reader. Speaking to the same publication, Bobby Rush said he went to Harvard and became an educated fool. We are not impressed with these folks with these Eastern elite degrees. He's not one of us, in other words. Barak wasn't a real black man, like them someone who spoke like that, looked like that, and read that many books could never be. What bothered me most was that Barak exemplified everything parents on the South Side often said they wanted for their kids. He was everything people like Bobby Rush and Jesse Jackson and so many black leaders had talked about for years. He'd gotten an education, and rather than abandoning the African-American community, he was now trying to serve it. This was a heated election, sure, but Barak was being attacked for all the wrong things. I was astonished to see how our leaders treated him only as a threat to their power, inciting mistrust by playing on backward anti-intellectual ideas about race and class. It made me sick. Barak, for his part, took it more in stride than I did, having already seen in Springfield how nasty politics could get, and how the truth was so often distorted to serve people's political aims. Bruised but unwilling to give up, he continued to campaign through the winter, making his weekly trips back and forth to Springfield, while trying earnestly to beat back the storm, even as donations began to dwindle, and more and more endorsements went to Bobby Rush. With the clock ticking down to the primary, Melia and I hardly saw him at all, though he called us every evening to say good night. I was more grateful than ever for those few stolen days we'd had on the beach. I knew that in his heart Barak was, too. What never got lost inside all the noise, inside all those nights he spent away from us, was that he cared. He took none of it lightly. I caught a trace of agony in his voice nearly every time he hung up the phone. It was almost as if every day you were forced to cast another vote between family and politics, politics and family. 
In March, Barack lost the Democratic primary in what ended up being a resounding victory for Bobby Rush. All the while, I just kept hugging our girl. And then came our second girl. Natasha Marion Obama was born on June 10, 2001, at the University of Chicago Medical Center, after a single round of IVF, a fantastically simple pregnancy, and a straightforward delivery, while Malia, now almost three, waited at home with my mom. Our new baby was beautiful, a little lamb child with a full head of dark hair, and alert brown eyes the fourth corner to our square. Barak and I were over the moon. Sasha, we planned to call her. I'd chosen the name because I thought it had a sassy ring. A girl named Sasha would brook no fools. Like all parents, I found myself wanting so much for our children, praying that nothing would ever hurt them. My hope was that they grow up to be bright and energetic, optimistic like their father and hard-driving like their mom. More than anything, I wanted them to be strong, to have a certain steeliness, the kind that would keep them upright and forward-moving, no matter what. I didn't know a thing about what was coming our way, how our family's life would unfold, whether everything would go well or everything would go poorly, or whether, like most people, we'd get a solid mix of both. My job was just to make sure they were ready for it. My stint at the university had left me feeling worn out, putting me in a far from perfect juggle, while also straining our finances with the expense of childcare. After Sasha was born, I debated whether I even wanted to return to my job at all, thinking that maybe our family would be better served if I stayed home full-time. Glow, our beloved babysitter, had been offered a higher-paying nursing job, and had reluctantly decided she needed to move on. I couldn't blame her, of course, but losing Glow rearranged everything in my working mother's heart. Her investment in my family had allowed me to maintain my investment in my job. She loved our kids as if they were her own. I'd wept and wept the night she gave her notice, knowing how hard it would be for us to balance without her. I knew how fortunate we were to have the resources to hire her in the first place. But now that she was gone, it felt like losing an arm. I love being with my little daughters. I recognize the value of every minute 10-hour put in at home, especially with Barak's schedule being so irregular. I thought once again of my mother's decision to stay home with me and Craig. Surely, I was guilty of romanticizing her life imagining it had actually been fun for her to pine sole the windowsills and make all our clothes but, compared with the way I'd been living, it seemed quaint and manageable, and possibly worth trying. I liked the idea of being in charge of one thing rather than two, of not having my brain scrambled by the competing narratives of home and work. And it did seem that we could swing it financially. Barak had moved from an adjunct position to a senior lecturer at the law school, which gave us a tuition break at the university's lab school, where Malia was soon to start preschool. But then came a call from Susan Schur, my former mentor and colleague at City Hall, who was now general counsel and a vice president at the University of Chicago Medical Center, where we just had Sasha. The center had a brand new president whom everyone was raving about, and one of his top priorities was improving community outreach. He was looking to hire an executive director for community affairs, a job that seemed almost custom-made for me. Was I interested in interviewing? I debated whether to even send in my resume. It sounded like a great opportunity, but I just basically talked myself into the idea that I was that we all were better off with my staying home. In any event, this was not a moment of high glamour for me, not a time I could really imagine blow-drying my hair and putting on a business suit. I was up several times a night to nurse Sasha, which put me behind on sleep and therefore sanity. Even as I was still rather fanatically devoted to neatness, I was losing the battle. 
our condo was strewn with baby toys, toddler books, and packages of diaper wipes. Any trip outside the house involved a giant stroller and an unfashionable diaper bag full of the essentials, a Ziploc of Cheerios, a few everyday toys, and an extra change of clothes for everyone. But motherhood had also brought with it a set of wonderful friendships. I'd managed to connect with a group of professional women and form a kind of chatty, hands-on social cluster. Most of us were deep into our 30s and working in all sorts of careers, from banking and government to nonprofits. Many of us were having children at the same time. The more children we had, the tighter we grew. We saw one another nearly every weekend. We looked after each other's babies, went on group outings to the zoo, and bought bulk tickets for Disney on ice. Sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, we just set the whole pack of kids loose in somebody's playroom and cracked open a bottle of wine. Each one of these women was educated, ambitious, dedicated to her kids, and generally as bewildered as I was about how to put it all together. When it came to working and parenting, we were doing it every sort of way. Some of us worked full-time, some part-time, some stayed at home with their kids. Some allowed their toddlers to eat hot dogs and corn chips, others served whole grain everything. A few had super-involved husbands, others had husbands like mine, who were oversubscribed and away a lot. Some of my friends were incredibly happy, others were trying to make changes, to attempt a different sort of balance. Most of us lived in a state of constant calibration, tweaking one area of life in hopes of bringing more steadiness to another. Our afternoons together taught me that there was no formula for motherhood. No single approach could be deemed right or wrong. This was useful to see. Regardless of who was living which way and why, every small child in that playroom was cherished and growing just fine. I felt that every time we gathered, the collective force of all these women trying to do right by their kids. In the end, no matter what, I knew we'd help one another out, and we'd all be okay. After talking it through with both Bear Ack and my friends, I decided to interview for the university hospital job, to at least see what it was about. My feeling was I'd be perfect for the job. I knew I had the right skills and plenty of passion. But if I were to take it, I'd also need to operate from a position of strength, on terms that worked for my family. I could nail it, I thought, if I wasn't overburdened with superfluous meetings, and could be given the leeway to manage my own time, working from home when I needed to, dashing out of the office for daycare pickup or a pediatrician's visit when necessary. Also, I didn't want to work part-time anymore. I was done with that. I wanted a full-time job, with a competitive salary to match, so that we could better afford childcare and housekeeping help so that I could lay off the pine sole and spend my free time playing with the girls. In the meantime, I wasn't going to try to hide the messiness of my existence, from the breastfeeding baby and the three-year-old in preschool, to the fact that with my husband's topsy-turvy political schedule, I was in charge of more or less every aspect of life at home. Somewhat brazenly, I suppose, I laid all this out in my interview with Michael Riordan, the hospital's new president. I even brought three-month-old Sasha along with me, too. I can't remember the circumstances exactly, whether I couldn't find a babysitter that day or whether I'd even bothered to try. Sasha was little, though, and still needed a lot from me. She was a fact of my life, acute, burbling, impossible to ignore fact and something compelled me almost literally to put her on the table for this discussion. Here is me, I was saying, and here also is my baby. It seemed a miracle that my would-be boss appeared to get it. If he had any reservations listening to me explain how flex time was a necessity while I bounced Sasha on my lap, hoping all the while that her diaper wouldn't leak, he didn't express them. 
I walk out of the interview feeling pleased and fairly certain I'd be offered the job. But no matter how it panned out, I knew I'd at least done something good for myself in speaking up about my needs. There was power, I felt, in just saying it out loud. With a clear mind and a baby who was starting to fuss, I rushed us both back home. This was the new math in our family. We had two kids, three jobs, two cars, one condo, and what felt like no free time. I accepted the new position at the hospital, Barak continued teaching and legislating. We both served on the boards of several nonprofits, and as much as he'd been stunned by his defeat in the congressional primary, Barak still had ideas about trying for a higher office. George W. Bush was now president. As a country, we'd endured the shock and tragedy of the terror attacks of 9-11. There was a war going on in Afghanistan, a new color-coded threat advisory system being used in the United States, and Osama bin Laden was apparently hiding somewhere in a cave. As always, Barak was absorbing every bit of news carefully, going about his regular business, while quietly developing his own thoughts about it all. I don't recall exactly when it was that he first raised the possibility of running for a seat in the U.S. Senate. The idea was still nascent and an actual decision many months away, but clearly it was taking hold in Barak's mind. What I do remember is my response, which was just to look at him incredulously, as if to say, don't you think we are busy enough? My distaste for politics was only intensifying, less because of what went on in either Springfield or D.C., and more because five years into his tenure as state senator, Barak's overloaded schedule was starting to really grate on me. As Sasha and Melia grew, I found that the pace only quickened, and the to-do lists only got longer, leaving me operating in what felt like a never-ending state of overdrive. Barak and I did all we could to keep the girls' lives calm and manageable. We had a new babysitter helping out at home. Malia was happy at her University of Chicago Laboratory School, making friends and loading up her own little calendar with birthday parties and swim classes on weekends. Sasha was now about a year old, wobbling on two feet and beginning to say words and crack us up with her megawatt smiles. She was madly inquisitive and utterly bent on keeping up with Malia and her four-year-old buddies. My hospital job was going well, though the best way to stay on top of it, I was discovering, was to hoist myself from bed at 5 a.m., and put in a couple of hours on the computer before anyone else woke up. This left me a little ragged in the evenings, and sometimes put me in direct conflict with my night owl husband, who turned up on Thursday nights from Springfield relatively chipper and wanting to dive headfirst into family life, making up for all the time he'd lost. But time was now officially an issue for us. If Barak's disregard for punctuality had once been something I'd gently teased him about, it was now a straight-up aggravation. I knew the Thursdays made him happy. I'd hear his excitement when he called to report that he was done with work and finally headed home. I understood it was nothing but good intentions that would lead him to say I'm on my way, or almost home, and for a while, I believed those words. I'd give the girls their nightly bath but delay bedtime so that they could wait up to give their dad a hug, or I'd feed them dinner and put them to bed but hold off on eating myself, lighting a few candles, and looking forward to sharing a meal with Barak and then I'd wait. I'd wait so long that Sasha's and Melia's eyelids would start to droop, and I'd have to carry them to bed. Or I'd wait alone, hungry, and increasingly bitter, as my own eyes got heavy and candle wax pooled on the table. On my way, I was learning, was the product of Barak's eternal optimism, an indication of his eagerness to be home, that did nothing to signify when he would actually arrive. Almost home was not a geolocator, but rather a state of mind. 
Sometimes he was on his way but needed to stop in to have one last 45-minute conversation with a colleague before he got into the car. Other times, he was almost home but forgot to mention that he was first going to fit in a quick workout at the gym. In our life before children, such frustrations might have seemed petty, but as a working full-time mother with a half-time spouse and a pre-dawn wake-up time, I felt my patience slipping away until finally, at some point, it just fell off a cliff. When Barak made it home, he'd either find me raging or unavailable, having flipped off every light in the house and gone sullenly to sleep. We live by the paradigms we know. In Barak's childhood, his father disappeared and his mother came and went. She was devoted to him but never tethered to him, and as far as he was concerned, there was nothing wrong in this approach. He'd had hills, beaches, and his own mind to keep him company. Independence mattered in Barak's world. It always had and always would. I, meanwhile, had been raised inside the tight weave of my own family, in our boxed-in apartment, in our boxed-in Southside neighborhood, with my grandparents and aunts and uncles all around. Everyone jammed at one table for our regular Sunday night meals. After 13 years in love, we needed to think through what this meant. When it came down to it, I felt vulnerable when he was away. Not because he wasn't fully devoted to our marriage this is and has always been a meaningful certainty in my life but, because having been brought up in a family where everyone always showed up, I could be extra let down when someone didn't show. I was prone to loneliness, and now also felt fierce about sticking up for the girl's needs, too. We wanted him close. We missed him when he was gone. I worried that he didn't understand what that felt like for us. I feared that the path he'd chosen for himself and still seemed so clearly committed to pursuing would end up steamrolling our every need. When he'd first approached me about running for state senate years earlier, there had been only two of us to think about. I had no conception of what saying yes to politics might mean for us later, once we'd added two children to the mix. But I now knew enough to understand that politics was never especially kind to families. I'd had a glimpse of it back in high school, through my friendship with Santita Jackson, and had seen it again when Barak's political opponents had exploited his decision to stay with Melia in Hawaii when she was sick. Sometimes, watching the news or reading the paper, I found myself staring at images of the people who'd given themselves over to political life the Clintons, the Gores, the Bushes, old photos of the Kennedys and, wondering what the backstories were. Was everyone normal? Happy? Were those smiles real? At home, our frustrations began to re-rub often and intensely. Barak and I loved each other deeply, but it was as if at the center of our relationship there were suddenly a knot we couldn't loosen. I was 38 years old, and had seen other marriages come undone in a way that made me feel protective of ours. I'd had close friends go through devastating breakups, brought on by small problems left unattended or lapses in communication that led eventually to irreparable rifts. A couple of years earlier, my brother, Craig, had moved temporarily back into the upstairs apartment we'd grown up in, living above our mother, after his own marriage had slowly and painfully fallen apart. Barak was reluctant at first to try couples counseling. He was accustomed to throwing his mind at complicated problems and reasoning them out on his own. Sitting down in front of a stranger struck him as uncomfortable, if not a tad dramatic. Couldn't he just run over to Borders and buy some relationship books? Weren't there discussions we could have on our own? But I wanted to really talk, and to really listen, and not to do it late at night or during hours we could be together with the girls. The few people I knew who tried couples counseling and were open enough to talk about it, said that it had done them some good. And so I booked us an appointment with a downtown psychologist who came recommended by a friend, and Barak and I went to see him a handful of times. 
Our counselor, Dr. Woodchurch, let's call him, was a soft-spoken white man who'd gone to good universities and always wore khakis. My assumption was that he would hear what Barak and I had to say, and then instantly validate all my grievances. Because every last one of those grievances was, as I saw it, absolutely valid. I'm going to guess that Barak might have felt the same way about his own grievances. This turned out to be the big revelation for me about counseling. No validating went on. No sides were taken. When it came to our disagreements, Dr. Woodchurch would never be the deciding vote. Instead, he was an empathic and patient listener, coaxing each of us through the maze of our feelings, separating out our weapons from our wounds. He cautioned us when we got too lawyerly and positive careful questions intended to get us to think hard about why we felt the way we felt. Slowly, over hours of talking, the knob began to loosen. Each time Barak and I left his office, we felt a bit more connected. I began to see that there were ways I could be happier, and that they didn't necessarily need to come from Barak's quitting politics in order to take some 9-to-6 foundation job. If anything, our counseling sessions had shown me that this was an unrealistic expectation. I began to see how I'd been stoking the most negative parts of myself, caught up in the notion that everything was unfair, and then assiduously, like a Harvard-trained lawyer, collecting evidence to feed that hypothesis. I now tried out a new hypothesis. It was possible that I was more in charge of my happiness than I was allowing myself to be. I was too busy resenting Barak for managing to fit workouts into his schedule, for example, to even begin figuring out how to exercise regularly myself. I spent so much energy stewing over whether or not he'd make it home for dinner that dinners, with or without him, were no longer fun. This was my pivot point, my moment of self-arrest. Like a climber about to slip off an icy peak, I drove my axe into the ground. That isn't to say that Barak didn't make his own adjustments, counseling helped him to see the gaps in how we communicated, and he worked to be better at it, but I made mine, and they helped me, which then helped us. For starters, I recommitted myself to being healthy. Barak and I belonged to the same gym, run by a jovial and motivating athletic trainer named Cornell McClellan. I'd worked out with Cornell for a couple of years, but having children had changed my regular routine. My fix for this came in the form of my ever-giving mother, who still worked full-time, but volunteered to start coming over to our house at 4.45 in the morning several days a week, so that I could run out to Cornell's and join a girlfriend for a 5 a.m. workout and then be home by 6.30 to get the girls up and ready for their days. This new regimen changed everything, calmness and strength, two things I feared I was losing, were now back. When it came to the home-for-dinner dilemma, I installed new boundaries, ones that worked better for me and the girls. We made our schedule and stuck to it. Dinner each night was at 6.30. Baths were at 7 o'clock, followed by books, cuddling, and lights out at 8 o'clock sharp. The routine was ironclad, which put the weight of responsibility on Bayrak to either make it on time or not. For me, this made so much more sense than holding off dinner, or having the girls wait up sleepily for a hug. It went back to my wishes for them to grow up strong and centered, and also unaccommodating to any form of old-school patriarchy. I didn't want them ever to believe that life began when the man of the house arrived home. We didn't wait for Dad. It was his job now to catch up with us. Chapter 15 On Clyburn Avenue in Chicago, just north of downtown, there was a strange paradise, seemingly built for the working parent, seemingly built for me. A standard, supremely American, god-it-all strip mall. It had a baby gap, a Best Buy, a Gymboree, and a CVS, 
plus a handful of other chains, small and large, meant to take care of any urgent consumer need, be it a toilet plunger, or a ripe avocado, or a child-sized bathing cap. There was also a nearby container store and a chipital, which made things even better. This was my place. I could park the car, whip through two or three stores as needed, pick up a burrito bowl, and be back at my desk inside 60 minutes. I excelled at the lunchtime blitz the replacing of lost socks, the purchasing of gifts for whatever five-year-old was having a birthday party on Saturday, the stocking and restocking of juice boxes and single-serving applesauce cups. Sasha and Malia were three and six years old now, feisty, smart, and growing fast. Their energy left me breathless, which only added to the occasional allure of the shopping plaza. There were times when I'd sit in the parked car and eat my fast food alone with the car radio playing, overcome with relief, impressed with my efficiency. This was life with little kids. This was what sometimes passed for achievement. I had the applesauce. I was eating a meal. Everyone was still alive. Look how I'm managing, I wanted to say in those moments, to my audience of no one. Does everyone see that I'm pulling this off? This was me at the age of 40, a little bit June Cleaver, a little bit Mary Tyler Moore. On my better days, I gave myself credit for making it happen. The balance of my life was elegant only from a distance, and only if you squinted, but there was at least something there that resembled balance. The hospital job had turned out to be a good one, challenging and satisfying and in line with my beliefs. It astonished me, actually, to see how a big esteemed institution like a university medical center with 9,500 employees traditionally operated, run primarily by academics who did medical research and wrote papers, and who also, in general, seemed to find the neighborhood around them so scary that they wouldn't even cross an off-campus street. For me, that fear was galvanizing. It got me out of bed in the morning. I'd spent most of my life living alongside those barriers, noting the nervousness of white people in my neighborhood, registering all the subtle ways people with any sort of influence seemed to gravitate away from my home community and into clusters of affluence that seemed increasingly far removed. Here was an invitation to undo some of that, to knock down barriers where I could mostly by encouraging people to get to know one another. I was well supported by my new boss, given the freedom to build my own program, creating a stronger relationship between the hospital and its neighboring community. I started with one person working for me, but eventually led a team of 22. I instituted programs to take hospital staff and trustees out into neighborhoods around the south side, having them visit community centers and schools, signing them up to be tutors, mentors, and science fair judges, getting them to try the local barbecue joints. We brought local kids into job shadow hospital employees, set up a program to increase the number of neighborhood people volunteering in the hospital, and worked with the Summer Academic Institute through the medical school, encouraging students in the community to consider medicine as a career. After realizing that the hospital system could be better about hiring minority and women-owned businesses for its contracted work, I helped set up the Office of Business Diversity as well. Finally, there was the issue of people desperately needing care. The South Side had just over a million residents and a dearth of medical providers, not to mention a population that was disproportionately affected by the kinds of chronic conditions that tend to afflict the poor asthma, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. With huge numbers of people uninsured and many others dependent on Medicaid, patients regularly jammed the university hospital's emergency room, often seeking what amounted to routine non-emergency treatment or having gone so long without preventive care that they were now in dire need of help. The problem was glaring, expensive, inefficient, and stressful for everyone involved. 
Her visits did little to improve anyone's long-term health, either. Trying to address this problem became an important focus for me. Among other things, we began hiring and training patient advocates, friendly, helpful local people, generally, who could sit with patients in the ER, helping them set up follow-up appointments at community health centers, and educating them on where they could go to get decent and affordable regular care. My work was interesting and rewarding, but still I had to be careful not to let it consume me. I felt I owed that to my girls. Our decision to let Barak's career proceed as it had to give him the freedom to shape and pursue his dreams led me to tamp down my own efforts at work. Almost deliberately, I numbed myself somewhat to my ambition, stepping back in moments when I'd normally step forward. I'm not sure anyone around me would have said I wasn't doing enough, but I was always aware of everything I could have followed through on and didn't. There were certain small-scale projects I chose not to take on. There were young employees whom I could have mentored better than I did. You hear all the time about the trade-offs of being a working mother. These were mine. If I'd once been someone who threw herself completely into every task, I was now more cautious, protective of my time, knowing I had to maintain enough energy for life at home. My goals mostly involved maintaining normalcy and stability, but those would never be barracks. We'd grown better about recognizing this and letting it be. One yin, one yang. I craved routine and order, and he did not. He could live in the ocean, I needed the boat. When he was present at home, he was at least impressively present, playing on the floor with the girls, reading Harry Potter out loud with Maley at night, laughing at my jokes and hugging me, reminding us of his love and steadiness, before vanishing again for another half a week or more. We made the most of the gaps in his schedule, having meals and seeing friends. He indulged me, sometimes, by watching Sex and the City. I indulged him, sometimes, by watching The Sopranos. I'd given myself over to the idea that being away was just part of his job. I didn't like it, but for the most part I'd stopped fighting it. Barak could happily end a day in a faraway hotel with all sorts of political battles brewing and loose ends floating. I, meanwhile, lived for the shelter of home for the sense of completeness I felt each night with Sasha and Malia tucked into their beds and the dishwasher humming in the kitchen. I had no choice but to adjust to Barak's absences anyway, because they weren't slated to end. On top of his regular work, he was once again campaigning, this time for a seat in the U.S. Senate, ahead of the fall 2004 elections. He'd been slowly growing restless in Springfield, frustrated by the meandering pace of state government, convinced he could accomplish more and better in Washington. Knowing that I had plenty of reasons to be against the idea of a Senate run, and knowing also that he had a counter-argument to present, midway through 2002, we convened an informal meeting of maybe a dozen of our closest friends, held over brunch at Valerie Jarrett's house, thinking we would kind of air the whole thing out and see what people thought. Valerie lived in a high-rise not far from us in Hyde Park. Her condo was clean and modern, with white walls and white furniture and sprays of exquisite bright orchids adding color. At the time, she was the executive vice president at a real estate firm and a trustee at the University of Chicago Medical Center. She'd supported my efforts at Public Allies when I was there, and helped raise funds for Barak's various campaigns, marshalling her wide network of connections to boost our every endeavor. Because of this, and because of her warm, wise demeanor, Valerie had come to occupy a curious position in our lives. Our friendship was equally personal and professional. And she was equally my friend and Barak's, which in my experience is a rare thing inside a couple. I had my high-powered mom posse, and Barak spent what little leisure time he had playing basketball with a group of buddies. We had some great friends who were couples, their children friends with our children, 
families we liked to vacation with. But Valerie was something different, a big sister to each of us individually, and someone who helped us stand back and take measure of our dilemmas when they arose. She saw us clearly, saw our goals clearly, and was protective of us both. She'd also told me privately ahead of time that she wasn't convinced Barak should run for the Senate, so I'd walked into brunch that morning, figuring I had the argument sewn up. But I'd been wrong. This Senate race presented a unique opportunity, Barak explained that day. He felt he had a real shot. The incumbent, Peter Fitzgerald, was a conservative Republican in an increasingly Democratic state, and was having trouble maintaining the support of his own party. It was likely that multiple candidates would run in the primary, which meant that Barak would only need to command a plurality of the vote to win the Democratic nomination. As for money, he assured me that he wouldn't need to touch our personal finances. When I asked how we'd afford living expenses if we were going to have homes in both D.C. and Chicago, he'd said, well, I'll write another book and it'll be a big book, one that makes money. This made me laugh. Barak was the only person I knew who had this kind of faith, thinking that a book could solve any problem. He was like the little boy from Jack and the Beanstalk I teased, who trades his family's livelihood for a handful of magic beans, believing with his whole heart that they will yield something, even if no one else does. On all other fronts, Barak's logic was dismayingly solid. I watched Valerie's face as he spoke, realizing that he was quickly racking up points with her, that he had an answer for every but what about question we could throw his way. I knew he was making sense, even as I fought off the urge to tally up all the additional hours he'd spend away from us now, not to mention the specter of a move to D.C. Though we'd argued over the drain of his political career on our family for years now, I did love and trust Barak. He was already a man with two families, his attention divided between me and the girls and his 200,000 or so South Side constituents. Would sharing him with the state of Illinois really be all that different? I couldn't know one way or another, but I also couldn't bring myself to stand in the way of his aspiration, that thing always tugging at him to try for more. And so that day, we'd made a deal. Valerie agreed to be the finance chair for Barak's Senate campaign. A number of our friends agreed to donate time and money to the effort. I signed off on all of it, with one important caveat, repeated out loud, so that everyone could hear it. If he lost, he'd move on from politics altogether and find a different sort of job. If it didn't work out on election day, this would be the end. Really and for real, this would be the end. What came next for Barak, though, was a series of lucky twists. First, Peter Fitzgerald decided not to run for re-election, clearing the field for challengers and relative newcomers like my husband. Then, somewhat oddly, both the Democratic frontrunner and the primary and the ensuing Republican nominee became embroiled in scandals involving their ex-wives. With just a few months remaining before the election, Barak didn't even have a Republican opponent. To be sure, he'd been running an excellent campaign, having learned plenty from his failed congressional run. He'd beaten out seven primary opponents and earned more than half the vote to win the nomination. Traveling the state and interacting with potential constituents, he was the same man I knew at home funny and charming, smart and prepared. His overly verbose answers to questions at town hall forums and campaign debates seemed only to drive home the point that he belonged on the Senate floor. But still, effort notwithstanding, Barak's path to the Senate seemed paved in four-leaf clover. All this, too, was before John Kerry invited him to give the keynote address at the 2004 Democratic National Convention being held in Boston. Kerry, then a senator from Massachusetts, was locked in a back-and-forth fight for the presidency with George W. Bush. 
My husband was, in all of this, a complete nobody, a humble state legislator who never stood before a crowd like the one of 15,000 or more that would be gathered in Boston. He never used a teleprompter, never been live on primetime television. He was a newcomer, a black man in what was historically a white man's business, surfacing from obscurity with a weird name and odd backstory, hoping to strike a chord with the common Democrat. As the network pundits would later acknowledge, choosing Barack Obama to speak to an audience of millions had been a mighty gamble. And yet, in his curious and roundabout way, he seemed destined for exactly this moment. I knew because I'd seen up close how his mind churned non-stop. Over years, I'd watched him inhale books, newspapers, and ideas, sparking to life any time he spoke with someone who offered a shard of new experience or knowledge. He'd stowed every piece of it. What he was building, I see now, was a vision and not a small one, either. It was the very thing I'd had to create room for in our shared life, to coexist with, even if reluctantly. It aggravated me sometimes no end, but it was also what I could never disavow in Barak. He'd been working at this thing, quietly and meticulously, as long as I'd known him. And now maybe the size of the audience would finally match the scope of what he believed to be possible. He'd been ready for that call. All he had to do was speak. Must have been a good speech became my refrain afterward. It was a joke between me and Barak, one I repeated often and with irony following that night July 27, 2004. I'd left the girls at home with my mother, and flown to be with him in Boston for the speech, standing in the wings of the convention center as Barak stepped into the hot glare of the stage lights, and into view of all those millions of people. He was a little nervous and so was I, though we were both determined not to show it. This was how Barak operated anyway. The more pressure he was under, the calmer he seemed to get. He'd written his remarks over the course of a couple of weeks, working on them in between Illinois Senate votes. He memorized his words and rehearsed them carefully, to the point where he wouldn't actually need the teleprompter, unless his nerves got triggered, and his mind went blank. But that wasn't at all what happened. Barak looked out at the audience and into the TV cameras, and as if kick-starting some internal engine, he just smiled and began to roll. He spoke for 17 minutes that night, explaining who he was, and where he came from his grandfather a G.I. who joined Patton's army, his grandmother who'd worked on an assembly line during the war, his father who'd grown up herding goats in Kenya, his parents' improbable love, their faith in what a good education could do for a son who wasn't born rich or well-connected. Earnestly and expertly, he cast himself not as an outsider, but rather as a literal embodiment of the American story. He reminded the audience that a country couldn't be carved up simply into red and blue, that we were united by a common humanity, compelled to care for the whole of society. He called for hope over cynicism. He spoke with hope, projected hope, almost sang with it, really. It was 17 minutes of Barak's deft and easy way with words, 17 minutes of his deep, dazzling optimism on display. By the time he finished, with a last plug for John Kerry and his running mate, John Edwards, the crowd was on its feet and roaring, the applause booming in the rafters. I walked out onto the stage, stepping into the blinding lights wearing high heels and a white suit, to give Barak a congratulatory hug, before turning to wave with him at the whipped-up audience. The energy was electric, the sound absolutely deafening. That Barak was a good person with a big mind and serious faith in democracy, was no longer any sort of secret. I was proud of what he'd done, though it didn't surprise me. This was the guy I'd married. I'd known his capabilities all along. Looking back, I think it was then that I quietly began to let go of the idea that there was any reversing his course, that he'd ever belong solely to me and the girls. I could hear it almost in the pulse of the applause. 
more of this, more of this, more of this. The media response to Barack's speech was hyperbolic. I've just seen the first black president Chris Matthews declared to his fellow commentators on NBC. A front-page headline in the Chicago Tribune the next day read simply, The Phenom. Barack's cell phone began to ring nonstop. Cable pundits were dubbing him a rock star and an overnight success, as if he hadn't spent years working up to that moment on stage, as if the speech had created him instead of the other way around. Still, the speech was the beginning of something new, not just for him, but for us, our whole family. We were swept into another level of exposure and into the swift current of other people's expectations. It was surreal, the whole thing. All I could do, really, was joke about it. Must have been a good speech I'd say with a shrug as people began stopping Barack on the street to ask for his autograph, or to tell him they'd loved what he'd said. Must have been a good speech I said when he walked out of a restaurant in Chicago to find that a crowd had gathered on the sidewalk to wait for him. I said the same thing when journalists started asking for Barack's thoughts on important national issues, when big-time political strategists started to hover around him. And when nine years after publication the formerly obscure dreams from my father got a paperback reissue and landed on the New York Times bestseller list. Must have been a good speech I said when a beaming, bustling Oprah Winfrey showed up at our house to spend a day interviewing us for her magazine. What was happening to us? I almost couldn't track it. In November, Barack was elected to the U.S. Senate, winning 70% of the vote statewide, the largest margin in Illinois history, and the biggest landslide of any Senate race in the country that year. He'd won significant majorities among blacks, whites, and Latinos, men and women, rich and poor, urban, suburban, and rural. At one point, we went to Arizona for a quick getaway, and he was mobbed by well-wishers there. This for me felt like a true and odd measure of his fame. Even white people were recognizing him now. I took what was left of my normalcy and wrapped myself in it. When we were at home, everything was the same. When we were with our friends and family, everything was the same. With our kids, it was always the same. But outside, things were different. Barak was flying back and forth to D.C. All the time now. He had a Senate office and an apartment in a shabby building on Capitol Hill, a little one-bedroom that was already cluttered with books and papers, his hole away from home. Anytime the girls and I came to visit, we didn't even pretend to want to stay there, booking a hotel room for the four of us instead. I stuck to my routine in Chicago. Gym, work, home, repeat. Dishes in the dishwasher. Swim lessons, soccer, ballet. I kept pace as I always had. Barack had a life in Washington now, operating with some of the gravitas that came with being a senator, but I was still me, living my same normal life. I was sitting one day in my parked car at the shopping plaza on Clyburn Avenue, having some chipital and a little me time after a dash through Baby Gap, when my secretary at work called on my cell phone to ask if she could patch through a call. It was from a woman in D.C. someone. I'd never met, the wife of a fellow senator who tried a few times already to reach me. Sure, put her through, I said. And on came the voice of this senator's wife, pleasant and warm. Well, hello, she said. I'm so glad to finally talk to you. I told her that I was excited to talk to her, too. I'm just calling to welcome you, she said, and to let you know that we'd like to invite you to join something very special. She called to ask me to be in some sort of private organization, a club that, from what I gathered, was made up primarily of the wives of important people in Washington. They got together regularly for luncheons and to discuss issues of the day. It's a nice way to meet people, and I know that's not always easy when you're new to town, she said. In my whole life, 
I'd never been asked to join a club. I'd watched friends in high school go off on ski trips with their Jack and Jill groups. At Princeton, I'd waited up sometimes for Suzanne to come home, buzzed and tittering, from her eating club parties. Half the lawyers at Sidley, it seemed, belonged to country clubs. I'd visited plenty of those clubs over time, raising money for public allies, raising money for barracks campaigns. You learned early on that clubs, in general, were saturated with money. Belonging signified more than just belonging. It was a kind offer she was making, coming from a genuine place, and yet I was all too happy to turn it down. Thank you, I said. It's so nice of you to think of me. But actually, we've made the decision I won't be moving to Washington. I let her know that we had two little girls in school in Chicago, and that I was pretty attached to my job. I explained that Barak was settling into life in D.C., commuting home when he could. I didn't mention that we were so committed to Chicago that we were looking to buy a new house. Thanks to the royalty money that was starting to come in from the renewed sales of his book and the fact that he now had a generous offer on a second book, the surprise harvest of Barak's magic beans. The senator's wife paused, letting a delicate bead pass. When she spoke again, her voice was gentle. That can be very hard on a marriage, you know, she said. Families fall apart. I felt her judgment then. She herself had been in Washington for many years. The implication was she'd seen things go poorly when a spouse stayed back. The implication was that I was making a dangerous choice, that there was only one correct way to be a senator's wife, and I was choosing wrong. I thanked her again, hung up, and sighed. None of this had been my choice in the first place. None of this was my choice at all. I was now, like her, the wife of a U.S. Senator Mrs. Obama. She'd called me throughout the conversation, but that didn't mean I had to drop everything to support him. Truly, I didn't want to drop a thing. I knew there were other senators with spouses who chose to live in their hometowns rather than in D.C. I knew that the Senate, with 14 of its 100 members being female, was not quite as antiquated as it had once been. But still, I found it presumptuous that another woman would tell me I was wrong to want to keep my kids in school and remain in my job. A few weeks after the election, I'd gone with Barack to Washington for a day-long orientation offered to newly elected senators and their spouses. There had been only a few of us attending that year, and after a quick